Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg, in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So last week, there was a decision by the French Supreme Court in the Lafarge case. They confirmed the charge of complicity in crimes against humanity can be brought against the French cement manufacturer Lafarge, which is now part of the Holcim Group. But the court dropped the charge of endangering lives of its former Syrian employees. Mm, That made me think about the Lundin case in Sweden. Uh, If you do want a deep dive into that, do listen to our past podcast. But maybe I could ask a quick Stephopedia on Lundin. A very, very quick and brief. The trial in London started in September last year. Two individuals who were controlling London were charged with complicity in war crimes for, um, I believe, paying off a militia who was guarding one of their oil fields in Sudan. In November, the Stockholm District Court decided that the plaintiffs in the London oil trial will not be able to have their damage claims tried as part of the criminal trial. Now we have this other long-running case, Uh, this time it's in Syria, where there are allegations of corporate complicity in crimes against humanity. The company is called Lafarge. And again, we have an issue of access to justice for victims, and we'll come to that later. And this decision came against the backdrop of the number of cases you were covering last week, Steph in The Hague, uh, or maybe earlier this week. I'm very confused as to time at the moment, as you can hear. One was by Dutch NGOs who are trying to get the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs to stop supplying weapons to Israel. Just can you give us a quick summary? Where was that being held? So both of the cases we're going to talk about were held at a Dutch district court in The Hague. And in the case of the request to stop supplying weapons or jet parts to Israel, Uh, That was in the appeals court uh, and another case that I followed on the same day was a case brought by Dutch war crimes prosecutors against a Syrian man who was found guilty of crimes against humanity for being part of a pro-government militia in Syria. Now, those two kind of sound a bit disconnected to what our main subject is. So I promise by the end of the podcast that we'll try and bring some of these weird little lines uh, back together. But first we'll go back to Lafarge. And these cases sound very unconnected, but when we spoke to the people about Lafarge, I had just come out of the court and I was very full with those cases. And some of the things that come up in the Lafarge and the London case also came up in the cases I had just witnessed. So we'll, we'll revert back to those at the end of the podcast and you can hear how it all connects. I thought that they sounded connected when I was thinking about it. So let's see whether our audience agrees with us. Just to say, in case anybody hears any strange background noise from me, I'm not in my normal place for uh, recording at the moment. There is a big road in front of me and there are people speaking around me. I'm in somebody else's office, so apologies if there's uh, a bit of background noise. But to bring us up to speed on the Lafarge case, we started with Canel Lavite from the EWCHR, the NGO based in Berlin, where she's the co-director of the Business and Human Rights Department. I've been very closely involved with the Lafarge case in 2018 uh, in the strategy, legal strategy, but also on the drafting of legal arguments together with our partner Sherpa uh, in France. That partner organization, Sherpa, is important because part of the Lafarge case was not only about holding the company responsible for complicities in crimes against humanity, but also about the Syrian employees of Lafarge and how they were endangered by what the parent company was doing. What happened is that the Supreme Court ruled on the two appeals that had been made by Lafarge against 
the decision of the appeals courts in 2022 that had confirmed its indictment for complicity in crimes against humanity, but also for endangering of its uh, employees' lives in Syria. And the Supreme Court issued a ruling that is twofold. Uh, one fold is, let's say, in favor of the plaintiffs because it's rejected the appeal on the complicity in crimes against humanity, which was mainly based on the competence uh, of French courts. And the second hand, which is very unfortunate, uh, we regret it very much, is that it decided to um, cancel the indictment of Lafarge as a legal entity for endangerment of people's lives, with the main argument that um, French law is not applicable to the um, Syrian uh, employees of Lafarge in Syria. Canel explained to us that back in 2022, though the appeals court had decided that the Syrian employees actually deserve the protection that the employees would get under French law. So we think that French law applies to, to the Syrian employees, first because I mean, the appeals court in 2022 already recognized this because it's considered that there is a closer connection between the employees in Syria and France. And it did so by finding that there was a permanent interference of Lafarge as a mother company in the economic, but also social management of its subsidiary in Syria, which led to the Syrian employees in it, of Lafarge's Syrian uh, subsidiary to be under the effective authority of the mother company, and which led this permanent interference to the subsidiary of Lafarge losing its autonomy. And she goes on to explain that Lafarge controlled over 99% of its subsidiaries in Syria and Lafarge Corporation's executives in Paris had been involved in decisions concerning the safety and security of its employees in Syria. And that's what the appeals court had seen, but not the Supreme Court last week. So on this basis, but also on the fact that Lafarge as a mother company controls over 99% of its subsidiary in Syria, and that Lafarge corporate executives in Paris had been involved in decisions concerning the safety and security of its employees in Syria, the appeals court had considered that the contractual relationship between the Syrian employees and the mother company could be ruled under French law. And the Supreme Court found, and we find this pretty inconsistent, I, uh, to be sincere, I cannot really understand it legally speaking, it found that all those elements, the permanent interference of the mother company, are only related to the relationship between the mother company and its subsidiary, but they're not related to the contractual relationship between the Syrian employees and the mother company, which, according to the Supreme Court, is a requirement in order for this criteria of closer connection to apply and in order for then French law to apply to this contract. When Canel was talking to us, I got a bit confused because I saw on social media all these tweets hailing this decision as very positive. And Canel seemed to be quite upset with the decision. So Lafarge had to face allegations of complicity in crimes against humanity. But apparently the way Canel looks at it, it was a bit of a mixed bag if you looked at the details. I mean, it's the first time that a multinational is indicted for complicity in crimes against humanity. And that clearly sends, and I mean, it shows what is the red line for companies that operate in armed conflicts, in particular, because in all the appeals that were brought by Lafarge, including a previous appeal by the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court could clarify that 
a company cannot exonerate itself from its complicity in grave crimes just by arguing that it financed ISIS or non group for the purpose of maintaining its commercial activity. So in that sense, this charge is really is a potential to create progress in criminal corporate accountability. So that is really a success. But the endangerment of people's lives is a charge that was very important for the plaintiffs because it could have brought them compensation as civil parties. And it could also have brought much more clearly the point that there cannot be double standards in the way that employees in France or in the global north where multinationals can be located and employees of those same multinationals who are relying on workforce and profiting from workforce and their subsidiaries and subcontractors abroad, that those employees are not treated the same, that they don't have the same rights and they don't have the same access to justice. Oh my goodness, this is so on point for this year, isn't it, Steph? It really is the year that we're going to be thinking a lot about double standards. In this case, it's about really who gets access to justice and whether the rights that are taken for granted in the global north, particularly employment rights, are kind of vigorously defended here, where we are normally recording in the global north, and whether they're actually also applicable to people in the global south. Yeah, that is the big issue. Does globalization of investment in companies that are able to operate in other places potentially bring wealth to different parts of the world? And does that then also mean that the people will actually benefit and get the legal protections that they should? I think this question of double standards is not only a question of narratives. The Lafarge case shows it very clearly. Already in 2012, when all the other multinationals in Syria had taken the decision to leave the area because the conflict had escalated and it was too dangerous for the employees, Lafarge decided to evacuate its international employees and it left its local Syrian employees. And now the decision of the Supreme Court tells these employees, you were left there, you were pressured to come to work and French law does not apply to you, therefore you will not get protection. So this is why I, I really think it's important that beyond the very important complicity in crimes against humanity charge. It's also known in the legal, but also more broadly, it's also known that this charge of endangering of people's lives has a huge significance for regulation of companies in a globalized economy. Um, one thing we explored a little bit more with Canal is uh, what might be next. Kind of threw around a few of the acronyms, maybe the European Court of Human Rights, maybe from the European Court of Justice, and they're, they're definitely not at the stage of making that decision yet because those kind of proceedings can take a lot of time and a lot of resources. Meanwhile, the plaintiffs have been waiting or have already been waiting for over seven years. Um, so we asked her also what's next in the timeline in France. So we can expect to have a trial, hopefully, if this is the decision of the investigative judges. I would say within, I don't know, the next two to three years. This is, I'm very cautious here because every single appeal or challenge by Lafarge can lead to decisions that go up to the Supreme Courts. So delays can pile up. And for the second part of the criminal investigation, I think we're looking at much longer timeline. I would not hope for a trial before the next five years, which in a way can be also seen as positive because they are still in the complaint, the former Lafarge employees and the other plaintiffs had brought other crimes related to labor conditions that have not yet been fully investigated. And that could 
if there are more investigations on these crimes, could lead to indictments and to chances for the former Lafarge employees to be compensated. And just a small extra for, for deep aficionados of this case is you may remember that Lafarge six or seven months ago pleaded guilty in the US for financing of a terrorist enterprise or paying uh, ISIS, and they paid $780 million to the Department of Justice. So we asked Canal, what is the connection here and or are these cases connected? Very often I'm asked, well, isn't that justice for the former Syrian employees because people make a confusion between the two? And I think it's important that the public knows this plea agreement is different from the proceedings in France. One, because none of the $700 million will go to the victims. This is all for now going to the US administration. And second, because it only concerns the charge of financing of terrorism, which is highly politically tainted and is not including the grave crimes such as crimes against humanity, nor the endangerment of employees' lives. So these are two separate things. One of the things I thought that maybe Lafarge could try to argue that they've already been judged once on the facts uh, of the French case in the US because the financing of a terrorist enterprise kind of overlaps in crime base with the crimes against humanity complicity charge. And there is this whole idea that you can't be judged twice for the same fact. Well, we'll have to see exactly what happens there. I mean, we'll try and stay on top over the next few years, what the next stages are. But we thought that it might be also interesting to look at a bit more at the broader context. So we turn to friend of the pod, Tara Van Ho of Essex Law School and Human Rights Centre, and asked her whether she sees some kind of positive trends here as more of these cases are being brought in Europe. I think we are seeing within Europe more broadly a trend towards prosecutors and judges taking seriously these allegations of corporate complicity in war crimes, crimes against humanity, and um, I suspect in the near future, genocide. So we are seeing that that movement. It may not always be with the judges, but it will be with the prosecutors as well in terms of this recognition that um, we need to get a handle on how these corporations are affecting conflict, how they're interacting with other actors on the ground. Both of the Lafarge and Linden cases are a little bit politically easy, if I can say it that way, in the sense that Linden was in Sudan under a government that was well rebuked by European states. And Lafarge is, of course, accused of financially supporting ISIS and complicity in their crimes against humanity. Those are easy political asks of prosecutors and of judges to go after those two regimes. I, I think we're going to be facing a little bit more difficulty as as things progress and as we look more broadly at how corporations have been supporting not just the easy targets, but also some of the more politically difficult targets. So there we go. There's the first of the uh, interconnections that we thought that you might find interesting as listeners is the connection back to the London case in Sweden which is also a complicity case, not directly against a company, but against individuals. And it's in Sudan rather than in Syria, but it has got a lot of resonances. I also saw another connection to the Dutch case against the Dutch state that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. That was a civil case with Dutch NGOs trying to get the Dutch government to stop delivering parts of fighter jets to Israel because they said those fighter jets are being used in violations of international humanitarian law in Gaza. 
And I was wondering if that was one of the cases that Tara was hinting at that she might see on the horizon that would be less politically easy than London and Lafarge, because those cases are connected to actors that are universally derided in the case of Sudan and militias and ISIS. But when it comes to Israel, it's a different situation you're talking about. And maybe we are also going to look at actions by the coalition of countries, including uh, the Netherlands, who attacked the Houthis in Yemen uh, to try and stop their attacks on boats through, uh, through an important trading route. So I would suspect in the coming, and these particular cases, coming months rather than coming years, that there will be calls for investigations into corporate complicity on several fronts. So potentially the Houthis, but more likely um, businesses that have been involved in financing the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine. There's long been NGO coalitions that have been trying to push for greater corporate accountability. We've seen European states resist that, um, most, I think, damningly so by the Austrian government, which conditioned arms support to Ukraine and the removal of one of its banks from the international sponsors of war list that the Ukrainian Agency Against Corruption keeps. In addition to that, I think you will see, um, and there's long been a, a civil society movement to see corporate accountability for supporting Israel's crimes against humanity and now accusations of genocide. Okay, again, you know, here's Janet going on trying to make all kinds of connections because I was wondering also whether these courts are actually kind of listening to each other and whether when a Swedish court, like the one in the London case, which had decided that the civil claim by survivors and victims had to be separated off from the main case, is something that then a French court in Lafarge case, a completely different case, but you know some degree of connection because of complicity, which has also said that the, that the victims in this case don't uh, really get a look in, whether we can start to say there's some kind of a trend going on. Yeah, unfortunately you are. I think it's, again, when we talk about what's easy, what you're seeing is the politically expedient protection of our values as Europeans, right? We'll listen to the prosecutors. We care about what the prosecutors say. We understand what the prosecutors want. And we want to make sure that we're sending the right signals. But when it comes to actually supporting victims, when it comes to remedying and repairing the, the harms that they have experienced, we're a little less concerned about that. There's a lot of othering in these processes. Um, the fact that Lundin now, the court has struck out their, their civil claims or, or separated them, disaggregated them from the criminal prosecutions. And we're looking at around 50,000 euros per claimant to pay up front as a deposit just to have their civil claims taken forward. 50,000 euros would be impossible for the average Swede to put forward, let alone for the average South Sudanese civilian. It's a clear barrier. It's an ongoing barrier that we've seen in a lot of these cases. The, the financial cost of taking claims against multinational corporations is significant. It's always been a barrier, but to see it manifest in these cases where the allegations are so severe and where the victims really are relying on the prosecutors to take these cases forward to, to overcome that barrier, to see it manifest here is just really sad. But I think it is a trying to think it, it relates very clearly to this desire to protect European values without actually any financial cost. It's, it's a bit performative at times, in my opinion. 
And here, what Tara said made me make another connection back to the other Dutch case that we mentioned at the top of the podcast, which was the Syrian war crimes case of a guy who was in the Liwa al Quds militia and was convicted of war crimes. But there, the judges also threw out a civil claim from victims saying that it was too complicated because the victims were Syrian. Uh, but when we were talking to the lawyer handling the cases, who was from the Lisbeth Segfeld lawyer's office, and if you want to know more about Lisbeth Segfeld, who also did the arms export case, we have an earlier podcast with her where you can hear what kind of cases she does. But that colleague of Segfeld explained to me that she was worried that it was becoming a trend with judges where they dismissed victims' claims when they came from abroad, because the Netherlands does a lot of these universal jurisdiction cases. And now judges in several cases that she uh, said had been saying it's just too complicated with international victims and you wonder, you know, you have this universal jurisdiction, you want to uphold international law, but when you have foreign victims, then all of a sudden it becomes too difficult. So we asked Tara how she felt if she saw the same kind of trend. That's long been an issue within the field of business and human rights. So if we go back to sort of the early iterations of these cases against multinational corporations, they largely took place in the U.S. and you saw U.S. courts really resist providing access to remedies for victims. There was this idea of they're over there, they should deal with their claims over there. We'll deal with what's really core to the to the central issues, to the legal issues, as if the law is somehow elevated against the needs and the rights of people that it was designed to protect. And I find that deeply problematic. And I find it really problematic that it's sort of transferring over here. In those early cases, European states went forward to the US courts and said, you shouldn't handle cases against our corporate nationals. Let us handle those claims. We'll take care of that. And now you're seeing this opportunity for European states to take that responsibility forward, and they're not. And I, I find that really disturbing. Uh, in terms of a bit more background information for our audience, uh, Tara also mentioned that the European Union is currently negotiating the final draft of its Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive which is supposed to require corporations to take account proactively of the human rights responsibilities, the risks and the need to mitigate and remediate victims. But she doesn't think that that law is actually going to go far enough in addressing these kinds of procedural barriers to victims in accessing the courts. As she puts it, you're supposed to be able to sue a multinational corporation in its home jurisdiction in Europe you're supposed to be able to take a case against Shell in the Netherlands, against Lafarge in France or in Switzerland. That's what the law is designed to facilitate. Tara also says that the barriers around things like financing access to the courts, having the ability to have your claim heard, those procedural elements are not being addressed as seriously by the EU as they need to be. And that's what you see in the kind of London and the Dutch case already, that sometimes the for local courts having international victims is just too complicated. So the timeline on that new directive is uh, already slipping. It was expected in December and they're still waiting for that to come out. So I think we're going to have plenty more to talk about. I think this is going to be a theme for us for this year, stuff along with many of the other themes that uh, we've chosen, the business and human rights stuff that is going on. Yeah, we already told our Patreon audience a bit about our plans and asked them what they wanted to hear. And if you want to be part of that and also get some of your input on what we will be doing this year and find out our War Criminals Book Club monthly, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon and support us that way. Great. 
I look forward to seeing some more patrons this year and see you again soon, Steph. See you again. Bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word. <laughs>